Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the betas we're releasing. Or, rather, not. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Pretty good. Yeah? Pretty, pretty good. Yeah? So last podcast, we were one day away from my developer account, my Apple developer account expiring and that came and went i didn't even think about it until i got an email from apple on wednesday saying hey your developer account has expired if you have any apps in the store they've been taken down of course my apps were already taken down (laughs) but yeah no last minute second thoughts or regrets or anything just kind of came and went well that's a nice confirmation that you probably made the right choice yeah yeah so i've been plugging away at what i'm tentatively calling my VR sandbox. And this is a an internal website. Internal as in this is something that I'm using. It's not open for anybody else to use. But this is where I'm going to be building a lot of the stuff that I want to build for other people as well. So it's a subdomain on my website and requires a you know, username and password to get into but uh, it's not, I don't know, bits, bits and pieces of this will be pulled into more publicly available demos. But when I say VR sandbox, I'm mostly meaning my stuff. So I think where we left last time, I was kind of waffling back and forth between using an express server with MongoDB and Mongoose or just building something in PHP with... A database and I went back to PHP for this not necessarily because I intend to continue being a PHP developer long term but because it's what I already know and it was easy to get up and running and my SQL is just kind of relatively I don't know there's kind of a recurring theme on ATP where Marco Armit talks about using like the tried and true old boring technology and this is kind of what that is like I'm never more than 30 seconds away from finding an answer to something in PHP because it's so ubiquitous and so well used and so well documented. It's just, I never have trouble. I'm never like banging my head on the keyboard trying to figure out how to do something or trying to figure out how to, how to phrase a Google search or something. It's just, everything is just so apparent and so easy to figure out compared to, especially compared to Swift. Um, But even other stuff like newer stuff. So that's where I am for now. I'm, I'm using MySQL and PHP for the back end, but it's it's not a it's not a well polished back end. It's just what I need to get data from somewhere into the front end of the app so I can start playing with it in uh, in VR. Um, interestingly, I'm not actually using MySQL. I'm using MySQL, but I'm actually using MariaDB because that's what my host ships. And I was reading a little bit about this. MySQL is an open source database that is you know, really widely used, but at some point along the lines, it was bought by Oracle and it's, it's maintained its open source status, but a lot of people didn't like the fact that it was kind of in the control of Oracle. So they basically made a feature parody version of it called Maria that it was forked from a specific time and and certain versions of Maria line up with certain versions of, of MySQL. 
So that's actually what I'm using, but in terms of code, you can't tell any difference at all. It's just on the on the web server, you can see, oh, this is actually Maria, not my MySQL. And you, yeah. you know, if you're doing like a uh, PHP info uh, call to get all the settings from the server, you can see what's installed. So I'm using that. I have some, I, I guess I've kind of reinvented or re-implemented a REST API, but not in a sophisticated manner. <laughs> um, Essentially, I have, I mean, there are lots of ways to do this in PHP and Express and lots of other places where you, you know, using a router style of coding to have one place that accepts all of the inputs for a site and then routes them to their specific destinations. So, you you know, you give it a, basically a URL path and pass in any URL parameters or post data you need to, and you can have your router route that stuff you know, throughout your web server to where that needs to go. I'm doing this the old fashioned way where I have a, I'm not using any libraries or frameworks. I'm not using anything from the PHP side or the front end side. It's just PHP running on an Apache web server. And everything I've done so far is native PHP or, you know, boilerplate standard library stuff, PHP. And I have PHP files in folders for where I want them to be. And then just using get parameters for a couple of things, but mostly uh, post parameters for the more complicated stuff. And doing it this way, it's a little bit more repetitive because there is some boilerplate that I can probably abstract into some stuff that I could reuse. But right now, there's a little bit of boilerplate on each one of these. But every one of them is completely atomic. Like none of these pages rely on one another in any way. So as I'm building bits and pieces of my database, I can just pick up a specific file and take it to another project to work on. And that will work 100% out of the box without anything else, no dependencies whatsoever. And that part is really nice. Um, it's not necessarily a style of coding that I would necessarily do on a big project, but for my type of you know experimental, quick iteration, mm -hmm. sandbox development, it makes a lot of sense. The only thing I want to change about the web server environment at this point is I'm using Apache's implementation of uh, HTTP basic auth, which is fine, but browsers and basic auth, when you use basic auth without any kind of front end implementation, you just get that, you know, browser default uh, username and password field. Mm -hmm. And some browsers let you save that in a keychain, and some don't. And it can be kind of annoying to just constantly have to log in to stuff, especially since it's kind of a long password. Um, but for now, it's just sitting there like that. What I want to do is probably turn this backend into a series of endpoints that I can authenticate via post request without actually using basic auth. Um, I think there are better ways to do this. Like if I were to use basic auth with a post request, I would essentially be base64 encoding my username and password and storing that with JavaScript, which would be a bad idea because anybody <laughs> can just say base64 decode this and tell me your username and password. Um, and granted, it's, it's the username and password for the web server implementation, not to actually FTP into the web server or any of the development resources. So it's not like... 
anything catastrophic would happen there, but you know, somebody would be able to see what books I'm reading. Um, this is all low stakes data. But. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I just had this sudden vision of an entire team at the NSA just like jumping up and down in their cubicles going, we've got his book list. Yeah, my yeah. book list, my VR library list. <laughs> Actually, the, the first thing I started implementing was uh, retrospective timelines. So I exported my data from the app and used FileMaker to split it into a couple different tables and then created all the tables in my SQL database and just uploaded it directly using the importer um, into my PHP admin console. And so that's the data I've been playing with the most. I'm going to build myself a nice VR front end for that stuff. Um, one quick thing still on the back end before I get to the front end stuff, I guess it's kind of both front end and back end, but I'm using the fetch API in JavaScript to make these HTTP requests to and from the server, or actually making the request to the server and getting response back from the server. And, you know, when you are working with PHP, you can just make a regular standard web form and then post it. And the data, if you've configured your form correctly with names and IDs, your data will be posted to a PHP super global called post. It's, you know, dollar sign underscore all caps post. And then that is just a like a key value paired uh, array or associative array in PHP that you can get data from form fields into PHP and you can sanitize it and throw it in the database from there. Um, because I'm using the fetch API, it doesn't actually work that way. And it kind of threw me off because I got everything up and running. My API, my fetch calls were working. Like I was seeing the data go in, but not getting data out on the other end. And for some reason, the combination of the fetch API and PHP, the fetch API puts this data in this other weird place. It's basically like a invisible file that you have to then import as if you were doing an include. And then you just, you import the contents of that text file and it's, it comes in as JSON and then you can parse it out and do what you need to from there. It was just kind of this weird side effect that I had never dealt with, like working with um, Ajax before. Ajax can just post your stuff where you need it to go. And I think Axios does the same thing. It was just kind of a weird side effect. Like it wasn't, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, two lines of code different at the beginning of one of these PHP pages as opposed to what I'm used to doing when you're working with a web form. Huh. But it was definitely kind of a head scratcher. I have no idea why there's this difference, but there it is. And I'm not sure if it's on the PHP side or the Fetch API side. So the front end of this is virtually non-existent so far. I spent most of the time working on the back end because I really want to be a front end developer. So I'm going to pull up my sleeves and spend two weeks working on a MySQL database and a PHP server because that makes a lot of sense. So what little front end I have now is basically just some HTML files that are being rendered from PHP um, rather than having static HTML files for now. Um, I've got kind of a mix, but most of, if you actually go to the site, like just the URL for the site, it defaults to the index.php and there's navigation built on top of that. 
And from there, I'm working directly in Babylon JS. So I've got a couple buttons on the main page that just go to another page that loads a full screen Babylon JS scene. And Babylon JS is so far the only dependency or third party code in this entire project, which is kind of cool. Um, all of the HTML and CSS for the client side is just regular stuff. There's no bootstrap or tailwind, no view yet, although I'm kind of considering adding view to this project. But uh, getting the data, like right now I have some really basic stuff where I can load a scene and then point and click at a button with a VR controller and load a list of data. And that's about it so far. Um, but that list of data shows up as 3D objects in the scene that I can then put where I want to. And I haven't really started building any of those tools yet, but just about getting the, the two-way pipeline working so I can get data from the server and send data back to the server. And I'm using the Fetch API over anything else mainly because it's built into JavaScript and I wanted to see what it's like to work with it. I'm not sure that I'll keep working with it indefinitely, but um, now that I kind of understand how it works, it's fine. You know, I got to this point yesterday where I have data loaded <coughs> into a scene and I really need to start thinking about this from a Babylon perspective. I need to learn more about how to make scenes here and how to actually handle a communication layer. Um, and this is where it gets more complicated. And I need to kind of put the backend development on the, on the back burner and focus on the front end stuff. And it's just, you know, a different style of thinking that I need to get into. The stuff I'm running into already is like in Babylon JS, how do I create an object that has an event attached to it that can destroy itself and cause the creation of an n number of something else's somewhere else. And this is where it gets kind of weird. I, I think I need to start, at least for the time being, think about this kind of like the way we did in Unity projects with uh -huh. a, a manager object that can handle these kind of, it can kind of be a singleton or a centralized source for handling these types of things. So I can say, you know, load up a scene, show me my retrospective scene, and it'll automatically populate it with a list of timelines. And if I select a timeline, I want the list of timelines to disappear, but not necessarily be destroyed, but just get mm -hmm. out of my face and then load all of the events for that timeline. And that's the kind of thing. There's nothing really built into the scene itself. Like the scene is the only kind of shared resource across these objects right now to deal with. But there's not really a way to necessarily call those methods on the scene. It's more of, I think I just need to make some kind of data loading object that can handle those calls. And then I need to figure out how to actually, how to structure any of this in JavaScript. And I spent most of yesterday looking at JavaScript modules and making classes in JavaScript and then comparing that against the TypeScript version of Babylon JS. So that's an interesting thing about Babylon. They have an entire, they've re-implemented Babylon JS as JavaScript and as TypeScript. And you can pick and choose which one you want for your project. Um, I don't know enough about TypeScript to 
say whether or not I want to use it. I'm staying with the JavaScript right now because of this kind of self-imposed constraint of not using any tools. Um, like there, there is no npm install for this project. There are no config files for Node or Composer or anything like that. I'm just writing code that is being executed as is. There's no interpolation or compilation or converting a bunch of CSS rules into actual CSS. Like none of that's happening right now. I will probably get to that, but there's something I like about this project of having every one of these demo scenes be kind of self-documenting and atomic where I can rip them out and then mix them into other projects as needed. Um, that being said, I think I might end up working with Vue or React with this stuff or with the TypeScript stuff or both. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it's a little confusing. But I was last night I was thinking through how to solve some of these problems. Like I, I don't necessarily know how to solve them in vanilla JavaScript or plain JavaScript without any of these things. Because um, I'm thinking about these from kind of like a top-down development standpoint. And I can totally do that with Vue. I can make a Vue app that loads data and loads components and the components just bring in the resources they need to render and then call events on those components to you know, call events in the store or not call events in the store, but you know, load data from the store, things like that. Like this, this would be relatively easy to build with Vue with what I know about Vue so far. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm gonna go that route or not. The, the other option is working with React and Babylon JS seems to have a lot of overlap with React. There are a lot of people doing projects in both technologies and Babylon JS 4.2, I think, is even going to include support for React Native for making, um, basically turning your web app into a native app if you need to install it on a headset. Um, so it could be just a good time to learn React. Like I've gotten, uh, you know, a whole bunch of, I've got a whole bunch of reasons to learn React. Mm -hmm. um, like Eden has recommended it. Geist Interactive is using it. There's some rumors that FileMaker is going to be doing something with it. Um, uh, over the years, I've turned down probably half a dozen projects when somebody says, hey, are you a React developer? I'm like, no, don't know anything about it. So maybe it's just time <laughs> I, I learn about it and uh, see what it's like to work with as opposed to view. But yeah, it's there's the pragmatic standpoint of like, I could throw view into the project um, and start building stuff right away and get from where I am now to something more complicated relatively quickly. But I'm not sure as many people are going to care about that. Um, so thinking about it from in terms of building tools for myself, but also building things that I can build for other people as well. I think the React side is, I don't know, I, I think there's probably more opportunities there, but I guess we'll see. So briefly, I wanted to touch on exactly what I am trying to build for myself and mm -hmm. then what bits and pieces of that I want to build for others. So for myself, I want to, I've got a bunch of data sources. 
So retrospective timelines, this is a good example. I've got a list of timelines and each timeline has a list of events. I've also got my reading log. So everything that I have read historically with information about the author and when I read them. Um, also like the source of the book, was it a physical book or did I get it from the library or read it in the Kindle app or things like that. Um, uh, then there's like outstanding list of things like uh, books I'm reading, TV shows I want to watch, games I want to play, more of like a to-dos but not things that are important to do. Um, and then, you know, I've got my VR content library. So I've got everything that I've ever bought on all of the headsets loaded into a database <clears throat> currently in FileMaker. And I want to pull that stuff out as well. And what I want to build is kind of individual scenes to work with each of these data types as kind of, I don't know, think of it as like VR forms um, to work with that stuff when I'm in VR. So mm -hmm. when I'm, <clears throat> if I'm wearing the headset and I'm, you know, reading through a list of blog articles and I find a VR game I want to try, I should be able to, you know, pop over the browser tab, jump into that scene and add it to the list. Um, at the same time, one of the bigger things I want to build is kind of an abstraction layer or an organizational layer on top of that. So you can think of this as kind of a, a super join table where I want to basically make a scene where I can invoke some kind of data picker. So I want to add something to this environment. So make a new environment, define some metadata about it. It's like what color the sky is, throw some 3D objects in here, add some sound effects or music, and then say, you know, maybe I'm working on a research project or I'm reading a book about phenomenology and architecture. So let me bring in the books that I'm reading from my book database and the books that I have read from my reading log and some of the web VR architecture demos that I visited. Like I want to bring in each of these as objects and this join table would essentially be not so much a join table in relational database, but more of like a lookup table. So each item in this table would be kind of here is what this is. Uh, this is a book or a VR link or a note, one of these types of objects that tells you where to get it in the database. Here's the ID for it in the database. But the other half of that record would be storing its position and its kind of rendering attributes. So did I attach this to a 3D object or is it just text in space? Where is it? What color is it? What types of materials is it using? Um, that's the thing I want to build that, that, that's like the main reason I'm doing this is to build this kind of ad hoc memory palace or <laughs> kind of infinite number of memory palace where each palace is a, a record in a database with you know as many related records as possible and each of those related records knows where to go and some of them could be pointing to records in my database on the server and some of them could be saying okay load all load in the to-doist project for this this thing that we're working on or load in the time tracking records or I don't know, it, it can get pretty abstract pretty quickly, but basically I want to build tools for myself to do a lot of the meta work and the meta computing that I do, but be able to do that in VR and eventually AR. Um, 
And then along the way, I want to, as I'm building these types of tools for that project, I want to build all of those things into kind of little widgets that I can use across multiple projects. So when I build a, you know, the, the interface for retrospective timelines, I'll have a timeline widget that I can sell to people. Um, and you can vi visualize all kinds of data in a timeline. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, the type of data that I'm working with in this, but it could also be, you know, viewing your WordPress blogs as a timeline or your podcast recording schedule, things like that. Um, lots of data could be visualized that way. But in addition to the timeline, I'd have a text entry for the timelines. I'd have color pickers, date pickers, rate, you know, kind of the VR equivalent of different types of value list selectors, like single selectors, multi-selectors. Um, that's the type of stuff that I'm going to end up kind of widgetizing or componentizing and turning into something that I can use on projects across the board. Huh. Um, I so yeah. really like this idea. Yeah. Um, if for yeah, no other is... reason than it has in and of itself nothing to do with FileMaker. Like these widgets would be useful in any environment as mm -hmm. long as the UI was going to be VR, XR based. Love it. Yeah. As long as you can get JSON data to these, they should be able to load whatever mm -hmm. you pass them. Um, probably like a minimal configuration interface of like how do these, you know, what what do each of these field names mean? You know, mm -hmm. attach them to what type of widget. Um, but yeah, that's, that's not to say FileMaker couldn't be a data source for no. this stuff, but it's not necessarily built around that. So yeah, that's... That's what I want to build. That's why I've been so excited about this stuff for the last six months because I can really clearly visualize what I want to build. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't necessarily had the time and energy to do it. But I'm I'm getting to the point now where I've got enough of the tech stack there that I can start spending more time on the VR stuff and less on trying to put all the pieces together. So there is that little question that I need to solve in the next two weeks, I guess before the next episode is, do I keep working in plain JavaScript, which has the advantage of making this code much more shareable, or do I start working with Vue or React or TypeScript with a combination of Vue or React? Um, that's the question I need to solve next. I, I, I think that's the last foundational question for this VR Sandbox project. Um, I'm leaning towards, I don't know, it's it's tricky because from the application standpoint, I would really benefit from, you know, a state-driven interface, being able to handle application state across different parts of the app and being able to do that in view. But from a component standpoint, I don't benefit from that at all. And it may be just kind of a, I'm using the view stuff for myself, but that's not the part that I'm turning into widgets and sending out the door to other apps. It's the individual components inside of you that end up rendering, like here's the date picker and the JavaScript from the date picker may be in a view file um, in its components or in its methods object, but that method can be extracted and used anywhere. So that's the part that I may be able to have kind of a middle ground of having my application state machine 
and view and react without the individual components necessarily being coupled to that mm -hmm. in the same way. So yeah. yeah, let your components pass the data to the widgets. Mm -hmm. um, and and bear in mind, I'm sure somebody has written some very nice state management stuff that doesn't require view and react. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't necessarily gone looking for more stuff yeah. yet. But neither have I. Um, but I'm I'm sure it's out there. It's a common enough problem that somebody's done it or done a really nice tutorial on how to build your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the the weirdest part about working with Babylon JS so far is that there 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 just aren't very many examples on their documentation of how to build an app in kind of a coherent way. There are lots of really small atomic examples, but they all end up doing everything basically inside a single function called mm -hmm. create scene. And then Babylon JS is calling that function on a canvas in HTML, on an HTML canvas to create the actual 3D content. And getting out of that create scene function, like everything is going to end up there. Um, it's, it's just kind of a weird way of like everything needs to be done in the context of a scene so you can't just say here is the definition for how to create a sphere with this material and here's its position and here's its rotation you can't you can do that but you have to tell it what scene it belongs to when you're creating it you can't just create that abstractly and then pull it in later um so it's almost like you have to create the scene first and treat the scene as a singleton object that you can then use everywhere or you end up just passing references around to it constantly. Um, and that's where I was thinking it could be fun with Vue to just create the scene, stick it in the Vuex store, and everything can just reference it from there directly. Mm. Um, I don't know that I necessarily need an entire Vue app for a single singleton. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so the last thing I want to say on this stuff is I wish I had gotten into web stuff earlier and spent more time on it. Like I have been working on this stuff since 2016 or so, but during that time, I've also spent a lot of time on Swift development, iOS development, Unity, Unreal Engine, C Sharp, and this stuff makes way more sense to me. Like I've made more progress in the last two weeks on this stuff, just understanding how all of this stuff works than I thought was possible. But there's something about the way that the web works and this type of technology works that builds up cumulatively and is far easier for me to wrap my head around. And I think a lot of it is it's so easy to make tons of versions or use the same feature in lots of different ways because there is no barrier to entry mm -hmm. like like if i'm working on a complex tutorial where i need to have a you know a whole ton of npm installs and configurations that stuff turns me off but when i can just make an html file and open it in a browser and start doing stuff like that is pretty powerful stuff and you end up learning or i end up learning much faster than i have in other areas and stuff sticks with me in a way that it didn't, like, I learned some really complex stuff in Swift and none of it stuck with me because I didn't really have a chance to use it 
um, or I may have used it once, but not got to reuse that concept in multiple ways. Whereas this is, I don't know, this stuff just makes more sense to me. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about what I can build with it. So what have you been working on? Um, well, I want to start with a just a teeny bit of follow-up, um, okay. which I know is supposed to go at the beginning of the show, but I didn't think about it until we'd started. So mm. my fault. Um, last episode, I spent a little bit of time, we spent a little bit of time uh, talking about some of my, my current uh, mental health slash mental satisfaction fun Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to give a huge tank thanks to those who reached out to say hi, um, check in, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person with anxiety, especially social anxiety, talking about these things publicly is like a nightmare scenario. <laughs> like as I was writing the notes into the show notes for what I wanted to say, my heart rate like doubled. <laughs> like just thump, 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 thump. It was... It was an anxiety-inducing situation just to type the notes. Yeah, so you're not you're not planning a TED talk about social anxiety. <laughs> not right now, though. It might make for a decent one. Um, mm-hmm. But all the messages were really supportive, and a lot of it was, "Yeah, me too." Yeah. Um, this is it's a far more common situation than we generally talk about because of the nature of the problem Mm -hmm. so um i just wanted to say thanks to everybody who said hi and and checked in and such and i've got a a whole list of people who are are now like hey if you just want to hang out and chat sometime give me a yell Mm -hmm. that's fantastic to have so i wanted to say thank you to all of those people um so yeah, stuff I'm working on. So uh, it turns out I'm an idiot. Um, mm. <laughs> That's a nice pivot. Yeah, yeah. I... Really working on my mental health. <laughs> I suck. <laughs> You're not helping, Dave. <laughs> yeah, but I'm laughing about this part. Um, <clears throat> we were pushing really hard to get out the next beta. Mm-hmm. And in our meeting about doing that and moving forward, you just had a couple of little bug fixes. And so I had like two hours to burn before I could release this update. And I'm like, hey, I'm just going to knock out a bug or two. And this will be great. And I, it it didn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. It never I got, does. I got obsessed with these bugs. And I'm all like in it. And now once again, I don't want to release the thing because the thing isn't complete, which is what I was trying to avoid in the first place. Hmm. Um, even, even the small component. Um, so yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and push a new version. I'm going to commit. I'm going to release it within like 24 hours. It's it's going out. Any of these things that are incomplete in a bad way, I'm just going to suppress. Mm-hmm. And um, any of the other stuff, I'll be fine to go. Um, the update notes are going to be a serious pain. Because <laughs> yeah. it's like one and a half months worth of commit messages mm-hmm. to kind of scroll back through 
because I know what the big things are, but I also like to make note of smaller changes. And it's just going to be a ton. So, yay. Oh, and it's one and a half months of commit messages in two different projects. There's the UI project and the backend project. Mm-hmm. So that'll be great. Yeah, um, the, the UI is much more additive. You fixed a lot of bugs on the back end yeah. as well that are going to require some more explanation. Yeah. If the UI is like, hey, keyboard shortcuts, <laughs> use them. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, but there's going to be three or four lines to that note. Yeah. Like, here's how you find the shortcuts because I haven't added the message for that yet. And I've got to, to document all this stuff. Otherwise, people aren't necessarily going to use it. And if they don't use it, we're not getting testing. And that's no good. Mm-hmm. Um, the particular bug that I'm poking at right now is right now, FM Comparison will notice that things like a table occurrence um, is different. But if it's a difference in the external SQL sources definition of that table, then there's nothing in FM comparison that will tell you what changed largely because I don't have any good test data for ESS. Hmm. I had a FileMaker developer send me a couple of snippets from their system. They couldn't send me the full XML and those snippets allowed me to kind of poke at it, but there's kind of two problems. Um, one is looking at that XML, just the snippets. I'm pretty sure that XML was coming out of FileMaker 18 and not 19. Okay. There's some structural elements to it that make me think this is FileMaker 18 XML, which I don't support. I'm just picturing like the matrix where everybody's staring at the screen, the computer, you know, the code cycling by and they can tell what's going on but that's you looking at xml for a ddr (laughs) this is an old version of the matrix yeah um (laughs) so um that said it's entirely possible that what they sent me was good valid 19 xml but the ess xml was not updated as much as all the other xml in going from 18 to 19 But because I don't have a complete file, I can't tell. And the amount of work that I've got to do to actually set up a database connecting to an external SQL source Mm -hmm. is a huge pain in the tail. So this is a call to our friends out there in listener land. Um, If you've got a good example file that you can send me with FileMaker 19 XML using ESS, I'm particularly interested in uh, table definitions, table occurrences, relationships, and scripts that talk to it like an import or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, yeah, I just, I, it's painful enough to write the code that I don't want to write the code and go, hey, look, ESS support and end up being wrong. Yeah. And it turns out I'm just not good enough. And I, I, I don't think anybody is, but <clears throat> to be able to say that with confidence when I don't actually have any real test data. Yeah. Like I don't have any data that I can run through FM comparison and go, yes, what I expected to see is what actually came out. 
Um, the examples were very nice, were very helpful, but they're unfortunately not the examples that I need. So again, if anybody's got good test data, I just need a file or two. It doesn't even have to be a full system. So if you've got access to the drivers and a SQL database somewhere and such like that, and want to make a quick and dirty database that just does these four or five things, great. That's perfectly fine for my needs. It doesn't have to, the system doesn't have to do anything else. I just need to see what it looks like in the XML when FileMaker does blah. So yeah, but I'm not waiting for that. <laughs> not waiting. I'm just going to go ahead and add, just com block comment out that code that I started adding because I don't want to have it appear in the interface and not do what it's supposed to do. And then write up the release notes and get the darn thing out. Start mm -hmm. getting some commentary on some of that stuff. And when I'm releasing updates regularly, it's, it is really motivating to me. Yeah. Like I release updates. I get feedback. I have communications with people. We're talking about the thing that I'm working on. All of that stuff feeds in in a cycle to keep me focused on the project. Um, and it's been missing for a little while. So. Yeah. So yeah, so that is going to happen. I swear. For for reals. For real. <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, before tomorrow. I mean, it, 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 it 24 hours. That's the okay. T today is Monday, October 26th. If you check FM comparison on the 28th and don't see an update, yep. please get a hold of Dave. Yes, absolutely. Jump on my head. So yeah, um, aside from that, the big thing going on right now is our Oculus Quest 2s came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Mine got here the day after the last episode, so Tuesday. I think yours came on Wednesday. I think so. And uh, I had one day where one of my accessories didn't show up, so I ordered the Elite Strap. I had, had one day where I had to use the built-in strap. And this is my biggest complaint about both the Quest and kind of the VR media. So a lot of the, you know, the tech journalists and VR journalists and YouTubers, they all got these headsets weeks before everybody else to do reviews on. And everybody said the same thing. And I'm paraphrasing, but the, the Oculus Quest 2 ships with a soft strap just like the Oculus Go. And everybody said just like the Oculus Go. This isn't anything like the Oculus Go. The one, I have an Oculus Go. The soft strap with that is very comfortable. It's very high quality. The thing they ship with the Quest 2 is a horrible piece of garbage. <laughs> it is the it's the worst like item in my home for anything. <laughs> like I can't think of anything like I should probably just throw it away. It's so bad. It's so uncomfortable. It feels like it's mostly made out of glue. <laughs> it's, like, it's like somebody dipped a, a, like a piece of elastic in glue and just left it in the sun and said, put this on your head. Like, what are you people thinking? <laughs> so, so it's awful. That's, that's one of the ways they were able to get the price down is by you know, really cutting down on the quality of stuff like that. But uh, that's my biggest complaint. So now the, the negative is out of the way. Let's talk about the, 
the good stuff. Um, yeah. So comfort wise, um, I, I find it fairly comfortable. My biggest issue is I've got a big honking noggin Mm -hmm. and like I, I had the elite strap as well. I spent about five minutes with the janky little thing that it comes with. Mm-hmm. And then was like, okay, let's swap that out. And yeah. yes, the Elite Strap is way better, but I'm basically cranking it all the way open yeah. to get it over my head. And then cranking it down three or four notches. And the notches are just tiny little clicks mm-hmm. um, to snug it up on my head properly. And that's that's suboptimal, but once it's on, it's pretty comfortable. It also helps that I don't have a ponytail on the back of my head anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's fine. My biggest issue has been the fact that the opening that your eye holes go into is actually pretty narrow. Yeah, it's narrow and not as deep as it used to be. Um, I even put in the, the glasses extension faceplate piece that makes that depth a little bit greater and it's just it, it's snug in general again big hunk and noggin but i have literally one pair of glasses in the entire house that actually fit inside that thing yeah i found a pair of glasses so my normal vision glasses two generations ago will fit in as far as width goes but they're extremely uncomfortable due to depth. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's pushing the bridge of the glasses hard into my face. And so I've got one pair of glasses, and they are my computer glasses, which means the focal distance isn't set properly for really running around in VR. So I'm a little bit hobbled that way. Yeah. Um, I'm holding off right now until I can get a fresh eye exam, and then I'm going to send off to that company in Germany that Joe used to, mm-hmm. to uh, get some, some custom lenses popped into this thing. And yeah. that I think will be great. Yeah. I've, I've got an eye exam next weekend to get new normie glasses, <laughs> but while I'm at it, I'm going to order new lenses for the quest because the difference between the quest and the quest two is the IPD adjustment mechanism. Um, on the quest, it was a slider. You could dip, dial it into specific millimeters within a set range. The Quest 2 just has three presets, and each preset covers three or four millimeters in range. And where I am on that switching mechanism, is it's a little bit wider than my actual IPD, and the company that makes these lenses for the Quest is actually doing IPD offsets when you get prescription lenses filled. Oh, neat. For the quest too, so they'll actually be able to fix that for me. So I'm looking forward to that. So, all of these comfort and sizing complaints aside, it's actually comfortable enough once I've got the glasses on properly and everything sized correctly. It's comfortable enough that the batteries actually don't last quite long enough. Mm-hmm. Like I can play longer than it can. Yeah, um, and that's a first for me. Yeah, it's it gets about two hours of battery life. No, not about. It gets two hours of battery life. 
it dies exactly in two hours, at least for me. <laughs> and and that in and of itself is a neat trick. Um, I I guess they spin up that processor and it stays running as hard as it can the whole time, and that's it. Like I would think that more intense VR would make the battery burn out faster, but it just doesn't seem to. So two hours of battery life, and then about three hours to charge it back up. Um, getting around that would either require playing tethered, which I have zero interest in doing in any substantive quantity, mm -hmm. or upgrading to the battery strap. Which mm -hmm. So there's a, a pro head strap that has an extra battery pack along the backside of the strap. Mm -hmm. And I'm seriously considering... I'm not serious. I'm going to upgrade to it at some point. Okay. Um, I think Eden's got one coming in. Yeah. And so I'm going to wait until his shows up and double check with him that it doesn't actually suck somehow. And if he doesn't say this sucks, I'm going to order one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what you think of it in comparison because you'll be the only one I know who has both the Elite Strap and the Battery Strap. Um, I didn't go for it because I didn't want the extra weight on my neck, but... I may consider it. The, another option is just you've got an external battery that you used with your Vive a couple years ago and a USB cable. You can just clip that to your belt and plug that into the headset. You'll have a wire running, you know, along your back or something. But that's how a lot of people worked out with uh, with, with Quest 1. It's Darn just, it, Joe. Yeah. You just solved that problem for me. Because um, the battery pack with the belt thing like the battery pack that i got came with a belt thing mm -hmm. so i've already got the belt I got, I yeah. got a nice little belt with a with a mesh pouch so the battery can still breathe that will probably solve my problem for the foreseeable future yeah sweet now i really want to pause the podcast and go plug that thing in make sure it's yeah. all charged up yeah i'm not sure if i want the extra weight or not with the battery. And I'm not sure how often I'll really run into that battery issue. Like two hours was pushing it in terms of comfort for me. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, in terms of overall comfort, it is still a VR headset. Mm -hmm. like it is it is definitely a lot better than the Quest 1. It's not nearly as front heavy. It's not nearly as heavy in general. But it's still a VR headset. And yeah. it's still like, okay, I'm, I'm done here. <laughs> um if, if this thing, I mean, if this thing had two and a half hours of battery life, I would bump into the the limitation way less often. If it had mm. three hours of battery life, I don't know that I would ever bump into it. Yeah. Unless I was at like a family gathering and I had a bunch of people running through the headset. Yeah. Um, I run into it more, not from a single play session, but from say like after dinner i want to watch a bunch of 360 videos and i'm in there for 45 minutes but because i'm streaming high quality content it's you know it kicks me down to 50 percent. but then you know i take the headset off and half an hour later you want to play some golfing and i'm like well it's gonna be 45 minutes before this thing is charged back up so it's more of the the charge cycle yeah so a combination of the battery life and and the charge cycle that mm -hmm. could really sell me the Elite strap with battery. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah. The big thing I want the more battery for, honestly, is to watch some video. Mm -hmm. um, I dug into the... So the, the Netflix app, I wasn't hugely impressed by. 
Like, yeah. It works. And, and that's fine. But I was really impressed by the look of the viewing experience for the Amazon Prime app. Mm-hmm. Um, it's set up like a... You're, you have a seat in a darkened, empty theater that has stadium seating. And so if you really look, you can see the other chairs. But when you're sitting in the chair watching the movie, the chairs disappear. Mm-hmm. And the screen is a lit, just a smidge wider than my viewing angle. So you can kind of pivot your head just a little bit, which is just about the perfect distance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... It just looked awesome, but two hours is not going to get me through Avengers Endgame. Well, that's the one activity you can do in VR while you're plugged in. <laughs> yeah. Just sitting on the couch watching a movie. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was hot enough, like awesome looking enough, that I was really thinking this is the only way I want to watch movies anymore. Hmm. Interesting. Um, the big limitation, so there's battery... And then there's sound. So mm-hmm. generally, I've been really impressed by the sound out of the Quest, particularly because I'm not using it with headphones. Mm-hmm. Just the the headset-mounted speakers are really rather nice yeah. for general-use speakers. Yeah, but, they're surprisingly good. And also, what they are is surprising as well. So... It sounds like there are speakers on the kind of the very ends of the head strap mechanism, but there aren't. The speakers are in the main body of the headset, and those little straps are pipes. And they're just shoving the sound through the pipes, and it's getting to your head like that. And it works. The quality of sound for like voice chat is Mm -hmm. amazing. So like when we're playing golf or whatever like that, it sounds like Joe is... His head is kind of in front of, in the center, and only about two inches in front of my ears, which means that his head is somehow impinging on mine. Like, yeah. the, the placement's a little creepy. I kind of wish he was about five feet further away, audio-wise. Yeah, it felt like I was wearing a Dave helmet. <laughs> but that's using the regular voice chat. If you're using spatial audio in an existing app... It wouldn't sound like that. We were basically using the the built-in VoIP call feature that works across apps. But if you were to meet up with somebody in like VR chat or alt space or something, you'd hear them positionally. Yeah. I've got to use the positional audio in one of those games as well. Yeah. I've got a, a, it's nothing fantastic, but I've got a a decent 5.1 speaker setup for my house for watching movies and I really like good full surround with uh, the appropriate quantity of bass. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, so what does it take to like pair AirPods with this headset or something like that? Well, so here's the thing. You can pair AirPods with them. They're just Bluetooth headphones. Um, You could get another pair of headphones and plug them in. But you've got your surround sound system and a receiver go get a long audio cable and plug that into your headset and use your actual surround sound system while you're in vr hey hang on a second my my brain is breaking (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a lot of cables for watching a movie but that's also kind of awesome hang hang on brain still breaking
Uh, <laughs> can you turn off the speakers? Or I guess when you plug in the headset, it would turn off the speakers mm-hmm. in the headset. Yep. Um, okay. Darn it, Joe. <laughs> I, one way or another, I've got to try it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to look like a cyborg sitting on the couch with a VR headset on with my battery pack plugged into it and a long cable running to the entertainment center. Yeah. In six months, you're going to have your movie alcove that you stand in. <laughs> you're recharging. One of those zero G chairs. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa. yeah. Um, D- Davis and his movie pod. But receiving yeah. movie. I, uh, as part of my test, I just turned on the, um, the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. and just kind of sat there and went, whoa, but I only had like 15 minutes of battery power left. Mm. <laughs> I was not going to cut it. So that's all cool. Um, the bowling game we tried, not bad. The engine and social elements, it doesn't all quite work the way I want it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm used to bowling in a way, like the way they do it is we have two different lanes, the you and I side by side. We each have our own lane. We can pretty much bowl at our own pace. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have our own separate scoreboards and I have to shift into another mode to see what your score is doing. Yeah. And to me, that's not social bowling. Social bowling is alternating frames one big scoreboard Mm -hmm. that's part of the experience of bowling to me is that it's it's not necessarily optimal if we're both trying to live our lives independently while we're bowling together yeah but that isn't it it isn't quite what i'm looking for Eh, okay the uh the top putt golfing is lots of fun Pro putt by Topkov. Yes, that one. Um, At one point, we had me, you, and Eden in a game. Mm -hmm. And it was just a hell of a lot of fun for exactly two hours. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, I wish it had some kind of notification where when somebody ran out of battery power, it would notice as part of the connection dying process. And just boot the person or semi-boot them and we could move on without them. But like Eden dropped first and then you and I got to stand there for two minutes waiting for the game connection to time out. Yeah. And then we continued playing. We were on the last hole and you died. (laughs) And then I had to wait for two minutes and that killed my battery. Nice. Like that's how tight all of the batteries were dying. Um. But yeah, that was a heck of a lot of fun. I want to put out like a general call to our listeners. If you get yourself a quest, quest two, and want to play some golf, reach out to us with an account name. Let's play some golf and talk about nerdy stuff. Yeah. Sounds like fun. If we get more people interested, we could also set up like a Mozilla Hubs room, kind of a persistent Mm -hmm. space that people can drop into. Yeah. Nice league with some elimination competition trees or whatever like that it it could be a blast mm-hmm. um, or it could just be super casual and we just put around for a bit yeah i like to just kind of hanging out aspect of it oh yeah yeah 
And it's a lot of fun kind of zipping around the course and talking back and forth and talking about the kinds of shots we want to try and strategy and whatever, which was a blast, which is the part that made it so that we couldn't finish the game because the battery ran out. (laughs) But having so much fun that you destroy the device is kind of a good testament to the device Mm -hmm. for everything except for its battery power. Yeah. Um, And then the fishing one we've been playing, you know, the name off the top of your head, uh, real VR fishing, real VR fishing, surprisingly satisfying. Yeah. So longtime listeners will remember, I've been talking about this game for like two and a half years. Um, I think I got this on the Oculus go when it first came out before the quest was even released. And it is just a lot of fun. And this is the first time I've played it multiplayer. The The Chrome or the UI around this game isn't particularly well done, but if you get past that, the mechanics of it itself are really fun. But yeah. Dave and I were basically just hanging out at various fishing spots across South Korea. And this game is, is interesting because they're using photogrammetry to make the scene. So they actually went out with some high-quality 3D cameras and recorded these fishing sites and then overlay the game on top of it. So you get this kind of mix of CGI and real recordings mixed together. Mm-hmm. Um, it ends up being pretty satisfying. The part that I thought was really fascinating about this with the multiplayer is that Dave and I were in different places doing the same thing in the same place, but having different experiences. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. Like I was thinking about this all weekend, like philosophically speaking, we're we're both in separate physical places, like 40, 50 miles away. But we're sharing the same virtual space, hanging out on the side of a lake fishing. But we're fishing different populations of fish because that's not been synced with the multiplayer <laughs> stuff. And we're seeing different environmental effects. So I'm looking at a cloud of birds and Dave's cloud of birds is slightly different and going in a different direction. And this is just really blowing my mind of like... You know, we we tend to create our own realities in lots of ways, but this is a really good example of like technology creating separate realities while we're inhabiting the same place, doing the same activity, but slightly differently. Also, I was listening to the music the whole time. Dave wasn't, and he couldn't hear my music. (laughs) Yeah, it was separate, simultaneous, overlapped realities, Mm -hmm. which is a concept that I really kind of want to play more with in my head. Yeah, yeah, there's... Um, if anybody wants to think more about this, there's a movie called The Congress. You should go watch. It is one of my favorite movies. It's the only movie that I've ever watched that I watched it again the next day, the first time I've seen it. Like I've never done that before. Um, okay. It's based on a sci-fi novel from Stanislaw, I forget his name, this weird Polish sci-fi writer who made a bunch of really weird but fun stories. But the movie is only very loosely based off of one of his stories. Um but I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but it's, it's a very, very good movie. Um, I highly suggest. Maybe we should assign it as homework for the podcast. <laughs> Have we ever done that? Yeah, I, I had a, a slightly similar experience when Eden and I were trying head-to-head Beat Saber. Mm-hmm. And through messing up on setting up the level, we ended up playing Beat Saber to different songs. Mm, simultaneously so i'm ducking under a wall that's coming at me and i'm looking over and eden is smashing boxes like what 
huh? How how are we in the same space? Um, Weird. Beat Saber is also not one that works well between people of varying skill levels. Yeah. And Eden is way better than me. I want to be a spectator and watch Eden and you play. Yeah, I'm not sure. Really closer to levels. I'm not sure I would be competitive in it because I I play it primarily for exercise. Mm -hmm. So I play on the middle difficulty, which is called hard, but there there's easy, medium, hard, expert, and expert plus. And I play right on hard because that's where I can do kind of the biggest swings. Like I'm really moving a lot mm -hmm. in that. Like if you ever see the kind of the meme video of the the one guy at the gym who was like sprinting full on on the treadmill. Like mm -hmm. that's me playing Beat Saber, just going <laughs> way too hard. And uh, when you see people like streaming this game, playing on Expert or Expert Plus, they're basically standing in one spot, maybe kind of wiggling around and just moving their hands very quickly. And I'm not playing that. That's not the right. game I'm playing. I'm really yeah. trying to loosen up my shoulders and my arms and my back and just get a full workout on my legs and doing squats and lunges and stuff like it's way more of a thing. So I've never really gone past. I played on expert before. And it's just like, yeah, this is fun. But this, that's not why I'm doing this. Yeah. I, I would tend to agree as far as that goes. Like the experience of swinging lightsabers is too much fun to do it with pure wrist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, overall, I'm really glad to get the new headset. I think it has a couple of compromises that they made to get the price down. Like we talked about the head strap. Mm -hmm. um, the IPD adjustment was kind of a downgrade and it's kind of a downer for a lot of people. Material wise, it's definitely, it's interesting to, I've had four Oculus headsets now and each of them have been from an industrial design standpoint, a little bit of a downgrade from the last. <laughs> and, and I think this is just kind of a side effect of them trying to get the price down to make this into a ubiquitous device. And it's, if it's successful and they're successful at building a platform, I wouldn't be surprised if in two or three years they start offering, you know, a regular version and a pro version or, you know, a nicer mm -hmm. addition with better industrial design. Um, but in terms of like overall comfort, like it doesn't even come close to the original rift granted that didn't have a computer in the front of it so it's not right. really an apple to stable comparison but the original rift was so much more comfortable the audio was so much better the head strap was so well thought out and the controllers were better um the newer stuff they they keep shaving off grams and that that weight is going somewhere and it's definitely coming out of the, the materials the thing is built out of not necessarily out of the electronic components so that part is a bit of a downer. The new controllers are fine. I was a little mm -hmm. bit worried they were going to be too big, but they're fine. It took me a couple of days to get used to holding them in a different position while I'm playing Beat Saber, but yeah, they're not too bad. Yeah, this is this is my my new advice baseline device. You yeah. you were right. Just if you're if you want to get into VR and you want to check it out, but you don't know what you want, and there's a, too many options seriously just get the quest 2 mm -hmm. um you can get better vr but the increase in quality just isn't worth the significantly 
bigger effort and three to four times the cost. Yeah. Like it's, this is totally good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I have more elaborate VR and I don't know that I'm ever going to throw the thing on again. I could probably box up my Vive at this point. Um, yeah. It's, it's there. I could do it. It wouldn't be that bad, but it's just, it's extra friction and being able to just pick it up, throw it on my head uh, use the home environment that basically turns on the external cameras so you can see the room you're in, which makes it really easy to find and pick up the controllers. Mm-hmm. Though it's a little fascinating and disorienting because you're in a VR UI, but your home is a 2D landscape. So it's like walking through the world with no depth perception. Mm-hmm it's yeah it's a little funky and so you like you end up having to reach a little too far or a little short to grab the controllers but you can see them and you can see where your hand is you just get the thing you pick the controllers up and go like that's it and there's no external cables unless you want to be crazy yes just get the quest two if this is a thing that interests you cool cool it's a long podcast I apologize. That's all right. <clears throat> I'm glad to get you talking about VR that much. 